0: How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community, perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Setting Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Jade, and this is Future Setting. (laughs) Right. So we're having a bit of a giggle because Christine has one of those beautiful but ever so complex Danish names and it is Christine Honshø Harper and I'm chatting with her from the pouring with rain but ever so beautiful place she now calls home which is Bali but for those who don't know who Christine is she's a a blogger uh, of a blog called The Immaterialist
1: is that right? Yes that's right Yeah.
0: And I can't read my own writing. That's why I had to question myself. <laughs> and an author, twice, two times, twice time author of Aesthetic Sustainability and now Anti Trend. And Anti Trend was, as I understand it, written while you were living in Bali, where you have completely rewritten what it means um, to exist. You've shaken the heck out of your family. And your safe life that was in Copenhagen. And you now live over there with your kids, and you've been there for a number of years. Let's kick off from there. Was that enormous?
1: Um, yeah, it was because we really also, especially because we decided to go all in. So we sold everything, more or less. Mm. Uh, we started a, a few boxes with kind of like, you know, things that you just can't get rid of, like photo albums and some books and some kids' clothes and stuff that has not, like, that kind of value to you. But otherwise, we got rid of everything. We sold our home and we got rid of all our belongings. So in that sense, it was, it was pretty extreme. But I don't know, it was needed for us to just go all in like that at the point. And um, yeah. And did everybody embrace it? Uh, No, I mean, a a, a lot of people didn't really understand what on earth we were doing.
0: Okay, so rather than um, those around you understanding, what about those of you who made the decision to go? Did everybody in your immediate family decide decide this was an exciting thing to be doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, we had been traveling like the year before in Asia and came to Bali and uh, we went to the green school. And mm-hmm. did a tour, not thinking that it was... Beca- I, I just wanted to see the architecture, basically. But then mm-hmm. it just started kind of like developing a bit in our minds that maybe we could do it. And um, we talked to the kids about it. I mean, now my youngest son was only four. So it's kind of easy with, with that kind of age group. He was like, whatever, as long as I'm with you, right? But yes. the older one was 10. And um, I mean, he was, he was up for it, but he was... Devastated to say goodbye to his family, and, and my parents, his grandparents, and also the f- the friends from school. Of course, I mean, he was really close to a lot of friends there. He still is. He's been really good at keeping contact. But of course, that was that was a big thing for him at that age, like kind of like a preteen. He was almost eleven, and like was really starting to establish some close friendships. So of course, pulling him out of that was tough. But um mm. but still, he was he was kind of adventurous too. I mean. And I think for him also knowing what it looked like because we had been here before made it made it easier to an extent, right? So he kind of knew what it was that he was going to. So, yeah, it was yeah. equal
0: part exciting. It was equal part exciting. Yeah,
1: he was, exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: So it's an entirely different life that you now live to the one that you were living 10 years ago. Talk us through how you've navigated that. I understand you went travelling for a year, And I I know when you're travelling and everything is on your back and you start to get a bit of objectivity and and perspective on what we actually do need, Mm. it starts to make things easier and you let go of the material a little bit more. But as someone who had dedicated her life to um, aesthetics and the design principles and architecture Mm -hmm. that that surrounded you and that's really what your language was, how did you go um, recalibrating?
1: Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, it, it was like kind of a, like a little bit of a funny transition because I yeah, as you say, I've been working in a design academy for many many years in Copenhagen, and I was working with product design and fashion design, and so you could say material design products that were being made and sold, and it was the sustainable uh, direction we were going in, but still, and uh, all of a sudden, kind of like really radically just minimizing our belongings to that extent was was. It was difficult. It was funny because I felt like it wouldn't be hard when we first started to do it because I had written so much about reduction of consumption and only owning a few good things and really minimizing your uh, belongings. And I talked to my students about it for years. And they had started really to also go in that direction, like just really working on designing those few good things. But still, it was really hard, actually, for me to get rid of things like that. I think the thing was also that it was, it was a little bit like things became valueless all of a sudden. Like some of my things that I could actually, our things, our belongings, like furniture that we could sell or give to people that were really happy about them. That was okay. But then there were all those other things that nobody wanted at the end and that you were just standing with and like, what do we do? Do you, <laughs> do we, and do you throw them out? Like at the end, like the last day before you, leave, what do you do? You know? This is just it, stuff. It, it, it just felt so wrong to just like get rid of stuff in that way. And, and yet we had to at the end, which I'm also like writing a little bit about in the book. And that, that kind of value loss... Like going from something that we used every day and that was useful to us to something being completely valueless to us and apparently everybody else too, was strange. Nobody wanted it. (laughs) Nobody wanted it. They were like, "No thanks, no more," because there are so (laughs) many discarded things in our in our world, right? And I would Mm -hmm. even go to like kind of like you know shelters in Copenhagen and like you know secondhand. Charity shops, and they were also a bit like, "No thanks, no more." We have so much, and I would look into the the back office, and I could just see piles and bags of stuff. So that was a really strange experience for me, and something I've really thought about a lot afterwards. And also written extensively about in my blog and in the mm. book too, because it was so so strange. Yeah.
0: yeah, we have this cultural tendency to be endlessly grasping at the next thing. What are some of the ways that uh I know you've talked about it about it a bit in your blog but what are some of the ways that people can focus on permanence rather than short-termism do you think
1: Yeah it's it's a hard one isn't it because I mean if we're talking about kind of like belongings and products I feel like that maybe even just thinking about when you buy something as an investment rather than a, a purchase for for consumption is is a good start It seems like sometimes we don't have a big problem with investing when it's kind of like bigger things. But like, especially when it comes to clothes, it's a little bit harder for us, right? I mean, we, we tend to buy things and change it a lot. So that could be a start. But I mean, it's hard because we also live in a world where we are constantly bombarded with intriguing, beautiful photos of new, exciting things. And of course, I mean, it's normal for human beings to get to get a little bit attracted to that, right? It's not, not because we bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's it's a difficult balance to find, but I feel like it's also got a lot to do with really starting to understand your aesthetic preferences and really tapping into them and understanding what really which objects that you purchase or invest in, ideally, really keep on nourishing you and that you keep on finding pleasure in wearing and using and kind of maybe even like underst- trying to understand what what are the commons between these? I mean, are there some things that do you prefer, certain colors or textures? And in that sense, kind of trying to understand your personal aesthetic can be a good start sometimes to, to maybe minimizing those more short-term purchases that... Yeah, it ideally, should be minimised. To be honest,
0: but things like your personal aesthetic—they evolved too as we as we age and as we um, yes. move into slightly different um, jobs or as we go through different phases in our life. So all of those sure. things are expected to be changed. And as you said a minute ago, there is so much white noise that that evocatively mm-hmm. tells us what we should or shouldn't be doing, and it's really hard to push back on that sometimes. How have you found that transition? so that you don't feel like you're endlessly dogged by this sense of hypocrisy
1: yeah I mean yeah that's a super good point and of course I mean yes we do evolve and also it's it's maybe also a little bit easier to talk about that understanding of your personal aesthetics when you're talking about like adults like mature people like not teenagers or really young people and maybe you can't expect it to the same extent because it's also about trying out different identities and finding out who you are and there should be space for that too but this is also why I'm in the book I'm I'm not on this like, kind of like a journey to, to make consumers feel really bad about overconsumption <laughs> of short-lived things. It can really quickly become like that, right? When you have this discussion yeah. with Jews and are you aware that when you buy this, whatever happens here? And it, it becomes like very quickly this kind of discussion, I think. And actually, I... I really, I'm not really that interested in that because I don't feel like it works, first of all, and I also don't feel like it's very beneficial for anybody. But this is also why I'm also putting part of the responsibility on the producer, productions, places, and designers, and, and not in a, in a bad sense, but more empowering designers to say you can actually do something because mm-hmm. ideally – the products we buy and surround ourselves with should be more flexible, right? I mean, they should be able to develop with us, or we should be able to change them slightly, or if they are short-lived, fashionable, trendy things, they should not be made of materials that can last from all this ever. They should be made out of materials that are only short-lived in a sustainable way, and so forth. And these things are possible now, and it, rather than saying that, oh, we're doing all this wrong, and designers and consumers, we should view it as an empowering phase that we're moving into where things are actually possible. It's possible to create products like that and consume products that are more sustainable without maybe having to completely compromise on aesthetic nourishment, on identity building, on fun, on, you know, it doesn't always have to become this very serious debate yes exactly and earnest yes it becomes heavy right I mean Mm. there are so many doomsday scenarios when we talk about fashion and consumption or anything shaming and anything really yes just
0: opening your eyes and starting a day can feel a bit dogmatic and doomsday sometimes given everything that's going on in the world Yes. So, where you clearly (laughs) still find a lot of joy in the way you're now living, what does that Mm. look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, what what has been like an extreme difference for me, which I, I wasn't even that aware of before we came here, was was being literally like outside you've just seen my home like I'm literally Mm. living outside which I did not do in Copenhagen I mean mostly because it's it's too cold right the majority of the year so the climate doesn't allow for that and we don't build houses in that way in Scandinavia but it's been it's really just so um Life altering for me, just to be outside and in that way all the time and feeling the elements and actually now the rain is just passing and the, the sky is turning blue and yeah, and then different kind of insects start to fly in and different kinds of birds and when I sit here and work, I'm always right in the middle of that, and it, yeah. it affects me deeply and it's it's grounded me incredibly so it's it's really been such a big yeah life altering process for me that I was not even aware of that it would be. I didn't think about that that much when we moved here. That that part about being outside in nature, always barefooted, almost, would have that big of an effect on me. But it really has had that.
0: And now that <clears> you <throat> are aware of it, are you able to really deeply appreciate it? Um, yes. On face value, or do you start to sort of scratch the surface to wonder why and how there is this primal response to it?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely do. I'm also um, writing quite a lot about that. And I feel like, I can feel that the closer you get to nature like that, the more, it. this sounds extremely simplified, but you get just more inclined to take care of it, like on a very basic uh, mm-hmm. level. Like also here in Bali, I mean, we don't have like, like waste management systems and and so whenever we get like like we use we buy foods and takeaway or whatever and we have packaging i mean we have to take care of getting rid of that ourselves and a lot of times unfortunately in bali a lot of it ends up in the beautiful nature and it just becomes it's so it's so in your face here and i i've just become so aware of of reducing that kind of consumption of that because i i see it all the time it's becoming just so Visible to me. It's in my face all the time. So it becomes less abstract and extremely concrete. Like I'm literally faced with it all the time. Okay, when I buy this, I have to get rid of that packaging at a point. How do I do that? Well I have to drive it. Exactly. This is where I'm getting to. I mean, I end up, do I even want to buy this? Because I have to. And (laughs) if I do, I know the process. I have to store it first and I have to put it all on my scooter and take it up to this recycling station at Green School and sort it all and all this kind of stuff. Right. So you end up like reducing. I've ended up reducing Mm -hmm. my consumption of a lot of things because. It's it's become so inconvenient, and I, I feel sometimes that convenience is the biggest like sinner you know, when when we're talking about unsustainable behavior because it's when it's when you do, when it's not in your face you it's when it's convenient to get rid of your waste you are simply going to be less inclined I think to to reduce it because it's just so easy right
0: yeah well it's no skin off your nose is it just to throw a a bag of plastics into a a waste bin that gets removed from your space every every five days
1: yeah 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 exactly Uh, so that's one part of it but I also just um I can just feel that like that kind of like like Grounding that that nature and being close to nature like that gives you. I think it's it's deeply nourishing and deeply uh, important for human well being. And I, I, to be honest, I wasn't that aware of it before. Before I viewed myself as a bit of a big city girl, and uh, right. now I most certainly don't anymore.
0: <laughs> and have the kids I, responded in the same way?
1: Yeah, they really have. Yeah, yeah, they have. I mean, I can really feel on them as well that when. We were back in Europe like last year and kind of being in houses like that all the time was, especially for my young one, he would almost become like a lion in a cage, like really, yes. <laughs> and, and refuse to put on shoes. And it was just a bit of a mess, but like I could just see that he craved that so much uh, and that like kind of being inside in that way was just so unfamiliar to him because we never mm. are here, never. Uh, and, of course, I'm not saying that's the solution to everything, but it's, it's actually like like quite crazy how much effect it has had on, on us as a family.
0: There's a quote in your book um, where you've said, we need more friction and less smoothness, less arc builders and more community. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I mean, a little bit maybe back as well to what I just talked about, about uh, the convenience. <clears throat> when I talk about friction and rawness and all those kind of words I have in my book, as in opposed to smoothness and convenience, um, it's, it, I mean that like, first of all, in relation to the products we surround ourselves with, I feel like products that are that have friction, that have rawness, texture, tend to be more sustainable in the sense that they keep on nourishing our our tactile senses and also because they can can hold, wear and tear uh, more easily, simply put. Uh, But on top of that, there's also more like a more kind of abstract, maybe philosophical level to it, where that kind of like lightness and convenience of our modern lives has really removed us so much from our natural world that I feel like that that the unsustainable behavior that we um, show or demonstrate or live by is because of that um, if, if it was a little bit harder for us if we were sometimes a little bit things were a little bit less smart home <laughs> smart easy yeah we would be like uh, maybe we, it would make us stop and think sometimes before we do things or maybe it would make us yeah even just too like do have mindful pauses in our daily routines and so forth. Mm. Um and in relation to the other one about arc builders and community, yeah. Um I feel like sometimes it's also it's really important to understand that we can't just kind of like save ourselves. And I mean, as privileged kind of um Westerners that move to to maybe uh, countries like Indonesia, like I've done, it can sometimes be easy to kind of choose that path of kind of building um, your convenient bubble where everything works and your water is filtered and, you know, everything is taken care of like that and and not really minding the community and, and pine, maybe even pointing fingers when rubbish is being burned next to your house and so forth without mm-hmm diving into the understanding of why it is that these people are doing this and without maybe saying okay if that bothers me well maybe I should get engaged in this community and and make a difference and make it stop and understand why they're doing it and not just build my ark and sail away uh, with with a few like like-minded people because that's not really going to make a big difference um so that's yeah, simply put what I mean, and I'm of course diving a lot more into that in the book as well. But um I just feel that it's so important to understand that we are we're in this together and it's not enough that just a few privileged, mm-hmm. um, yeah, sustainably minded people do good in order to really make a difference. We gotta convince and help the the majority of people in our community to do it too otherwise things won't really change and yeah we're gonna to have to shelter ourselves in our homes with air filters and I mean how great is that yeah <laughs> then we're yeah, again removing right. ourselves so from nature yeah yes <laughs>
0: yeah yes um I know I've heard and read um that you are a preserver of ancient traditions and you know this I imagine is happening right under your eyes where you're living now I don't know whether it was in your previous life in Copenhagen but it would be great to understand what sort of traditions you're really embedding into your everyday life and whether or not the kids are in on board with that and why you think there's value in preserving these ancient traditions
1: yeah well I'm I'm on different levels I mean I'm working a bit here in Bali with the some weavers, uh, and in that sense, I'm more like professionally, kind of like going in to help preserving some of those craft traditions that are dying out here right now, which is happening worldwide. And I, I, I actually I was engaged in that also when I lived in Copenhagen. I would travel with my students. We we were in India and Morocco and different places, Sri Lanka as well, to work with artisans in a similar sense. And this is also happening in Europe. I mean, it's a, it's happening worldwide at the moment that that well, it has been for quite a few years now, that crafts traditions are getting extinct because um, the craftsmen simply can't compete with the mass-produced goods um, that we can conveniently buy to a very low, low price. And that are very accessible to us because we can order them online. I mean, it's very hard to compete with, especially when they almost look the same as well. Um, yes. And also to understand why you should pay, you know, 20 times more for a craft product that looks almost the same as the cheap uh, replicant. I mean, it, it is a difficult one, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of working a little bit with what does it take to to... Encourage people to uh, to purchase things like that, to invest in things like that, and why is it important? Uh, what is it that we lose if if we don't? Uh, we we lose so much history and so much um, uh, yeah cultural knowledge about how to be a human being and how to live. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. But I'm also like, yeah, I, I do write a bit about like. Uh, putting like rhythms into your life and like your your life's chorus and how you can kind of like um, foster, build up rhythms that constantly nourish you. And this is not like... I'm writing also in the book about how you know the whole slow living simple living movement has brought that into focus and I I approve of that so much because I find it so important but unfortunately I feel like sometimes people connect that very much with almost like an ode to dishwashing right or making your bed and I feel like it should be a little bit more than that right I mean that's great if you find <laughs> great, great pleasure in doing the dishes or making your bed every day and that that grounds you. But um, building up uh, nourishing rhythms that ground you every day, I feel is very important. It could be doing the dishes and making your bed to start with, but then it should probably be a little bit more than that too. And it should also involve um, mental uh, uh rhythms of, of engaging is something that you are you are really find important and and working like that or just like having like a, a routine of every day sitting down and writing something maybe journaling or writing something else or whatever it is that works for you but but something that you do every day maybe even at the same time like almost like a ritual that can ground you mm. um, I f- I find that extremely nourishing um mm. and when I don't do it I I can feel that it's I miss it because sometimes I also don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that repetition is something that has held us as humans since time immemorial. And it's really important to acknowledge that that, that replica or represents safety and assuredness and security. And it's really um, important to acknowledge that that's h- how we have existed for mm. all time, other than that maybe the last three or four or five decades where we've just had this pace that is beyond our ancestors' mm-hmm. imaginations and mm-hmm. we've had more stuff that is beyond our ancestors' imaginations. And it's a very small blip of time that this um, um, short-term approach and sort of bitty desire to go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and be distracted every 15 seconds by the next exciting message that's passing through our mostly hands and on screens. And so actually we need to return to some of those simpler things. And as you say, it it might be an ode to making the bed or doing the dishes, but it might also be about stimulating um, the brain to develop and harness and maintain skills and pass those skills on to the next Mm. generation.
1: Exactly. And, and like also maybe about like understanding that, that sometimes things take time and like engaging in building up skills that are slow to learn. Like, I mean, I feel like, yeah, we're in this exactly like you're saying, this extremely high paced time where we get distracted all the time. I mean, I can feel it, too. Like it's, it's I think everybody can feel it like that, how hard it can be to just sit down with a book in the afternoon if you have nothing else to do without just checking your phone or without just it's so difficult um but that's also why it's so important that's that that is about bringing more friction into your life more heaviness because i'm actually also encouraging that in the book um less lightness and more heaviness and it, it's not meant as like grief or anything like that but like nourishing heaviness things that take time and that you have to like work to get to it's extremely satisfying and we forget that I feel sometimes at this like instant reward kind of time we, we're living in
0: Yes, we're so instantaneous now, aren't we? Yeah,
1: yes. <laughs> yes.
0: And I think it's important to remember that we live our lives based on our deeply held values and these have evolved through kinship, memory markers and our desire for what's to come. So I think when there's repetition, it gives us the ability to question, to encourage mm-hmm. and participate in activities that are with our people, in our place, feel familiar and really fill our cup mm-hmm.
1: but exactly. that's not
0: trendy yeah. none of that is trendy no
1: no it's not yeah
0: no it's sort of mildly derogatively explained as or passed off as being a bit woke
1: mm. and so yeah. how do
0: we get around that how do we continue to seek that richness that ritual brings but um, not get labelled with a, a tag that makes us feel like we shouldn't be doing something?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's a little bit like almost also uh, connected to to what I was talking about, uh, about the, the craftsmen, the artisans here in Bali that I'm talking. I mean, it's so slow and like uh, weaving yes. in the way that they do, it takes forever. Like, and... and it's so hard. I mean, when I look at it, I'm like, "Oh my God, it's crazy!" They've been sitting all day, and like they've done like a couple of centimeters or something like that, right? And it's just so wow. in, in in opposition to everything that that. Yeah, that we we cherish in our lives, like quick innovation, like disruption, like these kinds of things, right? But at the same time, I can just feel the value in it, and I can feel that these products are almost like charged with the the hands that are making it, that time that's put into them. I, when you st- afterwards, when you hold it, you could feel that time, and it adds value. Mm-hmm. And in the same sense, like like you're you're saying that, how can we, <clears throat> yeah, how can we almost make it like a little bit. Uh, yeah, trendy, like
0: uh, acknowledged.
1: <laughs> what should we say? I feel like, to be honest, valued. The t- valued. Yeah, the time is 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 maturing to it. I feel. I mean. Um, there's an openness to it in our time there is a, a bit of a movement away from the fast pace I mean I'm, I'm seeing it just even in kind of like podcasts getting longer and longer you know now like a lot of yes. podcasts I'm listening to are like two hours I mean in the beginning it was like max at half an hour right so there's even there there's a movement towards that and I feel like there's a there's a a desire for dwelling a desire for slowness that that um, comes from something very deep within us because people once they are allowed for slowness for a while they can feel that it, it works and mm-hmm. that some some of those skills that are really good and, and really important in human life they take time to learn I mean it takes time to to learn how to weave like those weavers. It takes time to learn how to cook a really good meal, yeah? It takes time to learn how to read. I'm sitting with my my youngest son at the moment. He's bored with it, but been like, it takes time. It requires that you do it every day, yeah? And it's annoying, but it's great yes. still, right? And these like, things like that, that are really deeply nourishing and really important in a good human life, it takes time, yeah? Um, But, yeah, unfortunately, we we get quickly very easily distracted, yeah?
0: Mm, Yeah, there's a lot of noise that distracts us. There is a lot of noise, yeah. Designed to distract us, but it can be really hard to exit yourself from that endless stream of noise.
1: It really can, yeah.
0: So we're just going to take a quick few seconds to have a chat with you about our Gold Star pod partners, the Hidden Sea. These guys reached out to me about a year ago and I've been enjoying their wine ever since. And the reason I have said yes to working with them is because these guys not only make an amazing bottle of red, which I'm now through and I'm starting to move through their whites, (laughs) um, they make a premium wine for people who care. So that's their groovy tagline. But the reason they care is because their wine saves the sea. For every bottle of the hidden sea that you buy, they remove re- and recycle 10 plastic bottles from the ocean. Since they began, uh, they have pulled out 13741837 plastic bottles from the ocean since July 2020. And they're working towards a goal of 1 billion bottles by 2030. Thanks so much for the work that you are doing, guys. And the other thing is that if you mention them when you purchase online as a Future Steading Pod listener, you get a 10% discount. Okay, that's all from me for the interruption. Back to the conversation. I mean, you've got kids and you've made a really distinctive decision to completely change your life. Mm. There must have been at some point a sense that you needed something else or you wouldn't have Mm. been quite so dramatic in the change that you brought about. And so um, I've got two questions here and one is was it driven by a sense that it, it was an intuitive sense or was it a bit more pragmatic? So that's the first question. The second question is: does it now, the way you live your life, fill you with a sense of hope for the future?
1: Hmm. Okay, so to be honest, it was a little bit intuitive. I think that's how we operate a bit. I mean, obviously, like we we were here and we would we were taken by the the beautiful campus of green school and we were like oh my god imagine if our kids could go here that would be great and run around in the jungle with bare feet and that whole image was just so strong and felt so good that like it was like okay like we need to do this but then we made the decision extremely quickly and rather intuitively and actually within Within half a year after the decision was made, everything was sold and we were on the plane. So it was it was pretty quick like that. And uh, we weren't sure for how long it was, but we were sure that, of course, it had come from, from my husband and I also wanting, like, to be honest, like a slower pace, but not just to kind of not do anything, but a slower pace in order to engage more in what we were really truly passionate about professionally. I really felt like I needed that space in order to write. Um, and I, I could I couldn't quite get that where I was at before. And and similarly he he really needed space to develop his projects. So it was also driven by that of course. And we could kind of imagine ourselves that that being here, that that would it would give us that space and that groundedness. And and I mean it didn't immediately but it did with time and um mm. yeah it 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 does give me definitely a hope for for the future also seeing like that you could you can completely remove your kids from one environment and put them in another one and they are incredible kids are incredible at adjusting and learning and I mean I find that just so yeah life confirming like really just nice and it just it makes me just happy to see how flexible and adaptable kids and human beings are in that sense um yeah i think that's really that's a really beautiful takeaway from it and uh i mean we'll see i mean what happens i mean i'm also like could also be like i don't know if we'll be here forever but we're here now and it's it's good for us now And uh, we'll see. It's also given Mm. us like kind of like we. I mean, it's not that difficult to do. We thought it would be, but it wasn't that difficult. So we could we could do that again. You know, Mm. that kind of feeling. Yeah.
0: What have you had to unlearn in order to live the way you're now living?
1: Um, I, I feel like, to be honest, one of the one of the biggest challenges for me. We thought because when we just moved here, we decided to go all in. So we moved into this like extremely. Um, I wouldn't say primitive, but yeah, primitive might be the word. Bamboo house. There were no doors, no walls. There aren't walls here either. But still, this was more extreme. The toilet was like a compost toilet, so we didn't even have like a like an ordinary toilet and these kinds of things. And it was in the middle of the jungle, in a, in a small community. And and um, I thought that for a family that would be really challenging and really good for us to live like that, like always had mm. like muddy feet, like kids were running around and like there were bugs everywhere and animals and dogs and stuff like that. But that wasn't really it strangely wasn't that challenging, even though we came from this city life, like in an apartment in the center of Copenhagen, from to that, it wasn't it wasn't that challenging. What I found the most challenging and still kind of deal a little bit with is that kind of like, I mean, for many years I was working like more you could say ordinary job where you go to work and you do your thing and you're off. And now that I'm not, and I'm in charge of like my daily routine like that myself. And that, that's that been really hard for me to structure that. And to also, kind of like embrace the fact that I don't always have to like work for eight hours in order to feel like okay now I'm off and now I can do what I want that everything should be more right. fluid but it's it's been strange for me to experience how hard that has actually been for me to give up that yeah. that kind of like recalibration of that
0: industrialized expectation exactly
1: like on learning mm-hmm. that's that, where
0: value sits
1: yeah it's it's just been so hard for me to feel like no, like some days, like I'm riding for an hour and I've gone really far and maybe that's enough. Like maybe there's no more in me that day. And then mm. to accept that and to embrace the fact that that's okay, it's so difficult. And unlearning those cultural conducts have been so hard for me and I'm still really dealing with it big time.
0: Mm, and it wraps <laughs> yeah. your identity into it, doesn't it? And you yes. start to question your value and your contribution and mm. what your role is.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so unlearning what work is and what work and, and, and leisure time is and how you can structure that and maybe it, it doesn't have to be separated and all those kind of discussions that yeah many people have in, in our kind of modern world um, mm. have really – I didn't think it would be that difficult for me, but it, it has been really hard and, and still And it's. then the counter
0: <laughs> is if you went back to Copenhagen tomorrow mm. – Mm. What would you have to take with you in order to feel like the pro- the experience has been worthwhile and, you know, you, you can't be without it now?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely have to take uh, with me that it doesn't, you can't always kind of count in hours and minutes the value you produce, like that that's mm. not possible. I know now that like some of my, some of the stuff I sometimes produce that, be, that is most valuable uh, if I had to write an article or something sometimes it just works immediately sometimes it doesn't and I can't work in that way anymore that I used to and I'd want to take that with me too because I feel like it's I'm slowly starting to understand when the best times are for me that's also about the whole structuring your day and your rhythms understanding your preferences of when you should work and when am I most productive and when am I not and understanding that about myself and about the way I work is something I'd be really sad to give up because it's been a long journey and it's it's yeah it's been so important and so good for me to get to that slowly I'm not quite there yet but I'm really starting to understand now when should I do this what do I need to put in between how do I need to put like nourishing rituals and routines into my life in order to be productive um what does it even mean to be productive uh and so forth and not to feel you know that strange guilt of of not working when you know that you are okay to not work it's it's yeah, mm. <laughs> I don't yeah know it just flies
0: in the face of what our cultural <laughs> beliefs are mm yeah so, so yeah. you've you've left family you've left all of your uh, friends and the kids friends and I'm assuming that through the green school you've re-established a sense of community but now that you're looking through a slightly different lens for all of the decisions that you make in your life what does community mean to you
1: yeah that's a, that's a really interesting question I mean yeah I do. I mean I, I definitely like have found a great community here, um, and uh, I feel like community is is something that um, is is should be should be maybe also around, like in order to really be nourishing to you around like uh, like like some some like-minded people where, like, I was just talking about, like, it needs to also involve uh, the local people here, I feel, and involve the local community uh, in order to really make sense. It's a little bit funny when you move to a place like this and you immediately surround yourself majorly with with expats because this is how it is yes. right you, you it, when you move and you you start in a big international school and and you get kind of wound up in that and it's easy to do but then i felt like i was losing a little bit of the connection to the land and to the culture here so i had to to kind of rewind that a little bit and and dip a little bit more into local communities here too, because we actually, where we live is very local area, which we prefer. This is very conscious decision also on our behalf that we've really chosen to live out in the middle of nowhere in a very small village. And we are surrounded by like local people. And um, that has really given me a different kind of connection to the place so community also for me it needs to also connect you to the place where you're living especially when you're living far away from where you're from you could say like this is not my obviously my home country and I will never be Balinese Um, that's okay but I still need like some kind of a connection to this place and I need to feel like that I'm I'm grounded in that in order to really be able to be here for a long time, I feel. I mean, if you come here for a year or two years, which a lot of people do, maybe it's okay to kind of just, you know, enjoy that also really beautiful and nourishing expat community that there is here. But when it's a bit more long-term, I feel like you need that. You need to to uh, to dip into that, uh, the other kind of community which involves like locals and involves getting a connection to the place involves learning the language slowly, involves these kinds of things. And for me also involves um, uh, working with the artisans uh, that I work with here. Uh, otherwise, I could feel that just sitting on my in my living room every day, just writing about something I could write about wherever in the world I would be wasn't enough after a while. I needed to also dip into uh, to the local community and, and feel that kind of connection. Yeah.
0: Mm. And I imagine it's quite sensorial.
1: Mm, yeah. yeah, it really is. Bali just is. I don't know. It's it's funny when I'm away from here, I miss that the most. Like the feeling of Bali, um, mm-hmm. the moisture, the heat, the the different, the winds. The, it's it's a very, it is a very sensorial place, especially because you. I mean, you're always barefooted and you're always out in it, right? Like with not very much clothes on. So like your body is literally soaked in it all the time. So yes, yes, that connection is is important, very important too. And Mm
0: -hmm. uh, yeah. And you said you're living in a little small town. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that you've found ways to replicate what the locals are doing in order to really entrench yourself in the local community by eating local locally grown food and participating in local festivals and and local craftsmanship
1: well we're trying i mean it's funny you're missing the local food thing because it's 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 a difficult one to completely give up your food habits. Didn't think it was as difficult as it is, especially when you have kids that they still really like to get some, you know, like pizza, like those kind of like more Western foods. So of course we, we, we make that ourselves too, but we're trying as much as we can to buy local groceries out here to cook from. Um, but, yeah, it's it's not always easy, but we really try. And, and especially I, I buy all vegetables and stuff around here by local people. Um, so that's that's nice and it gives me a really good connection. And yeah, we do have like established some, some really beautiful friendships here that have enabled us to, you know, attend like Balinese weddings and, and some of all those beautiful ceremonies they do here. And that really creates a, a strong connection to the place as well because it's such a big part of, of the Balinese people's life, it's ceremonies all the time. Last Yesterday we just had full moon here in Bali, and of course entire mm-hmm. Bali is full of ceremonies whenever there's full moon. Um, and uh, yeah, in order to really understand that culture, you you have to attend some of those ceremonies, which we do sometimes to get invited to, and that's beautiful too. Yeah, really creates a good yeah, understanding it of the- the
0: cultural richness that comes from that repetitive seasonal celebration
1: uh-huh yeah 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 it's also a lot about those rhythms right the full moon the the seasons the new moon like it's always about those kind of rhythms and in that sense there's that more indigenous way of navigating in the world and like looking at the sky and oh okay now it's soon full moon again and which is really interesting actually to me and and beautiful yeah
0: And observing whether you respond to all of those things physiologically and emotionally.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and And once you get aware of it, and because exactly, once you get aware of it, you start to think like, "Whoa, you really do." I think, Mm -hmm. especially when you maybe just convince yourself that you do, but it feels like we do. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I think that that ability to truly connect with country can feel a little bit orchestrated in the beginning but when you actually sit and seek affirmation from the natural world, it does actually come. You start to wonder whether you're making it up but I think when you give it the time and you really entrench yourself in the place, even yeah. if it's not where you and your your heritage comes from, I think you can start to read and feel that you are just a tiny speck in the world around you.
1: Exactly. I had, I had I had some interesting experiences sometimes with my youngest son, who is very much about. Re- he's really really good at reading nature. Like he says, said to me the other night. Listen, right now the cicadas they always scream at a specific time of night, right, like at dusk. And he said, listen, t- tonight they're screaming in a different way. Can you hear it? Listen, mum. He said. And I was like, yeah, I guess they were a little bit more. And he said that means that rain is coming very soon. And then sure enough, it did. And I was like, oh my. God, like, how did you know that? And like, I've had a lot of experiences like that with him lately, where he'll say like stuff like that, or he'll he'll look at like animal traces in the ground and say, "Oh, those those traces from ants. They're like a big kind of red ant that they look. You can see it a little bit different than that one." And so they're really, he's really starting to read nature in that sense and understand about when rainstorms will come in and thunder and like it's it's really interesting to me. And I'm like always writing it down when he says it because i've started writing a new book now um that i call uncultivated and it's very much based on on observation like observations like that and how when you unlearn some things you learn new things as well and like Mm -hmm. how that kind of reading our natural surroundings is something that has been removed completely from from most uh, kind of like late modern Western type cultures where you live in cities and and tame mm. nature all the time and
0: uh, yeah and yet it's primal. We're all inbuilt so with this intuitive exactly. knowledge. We just have exactly. to actually tap into that intuition into that exactly. that sense for survival.
1: Yes, and I mean, yeah, and it it shows it so much that he because of him because he's still he's still so young that like it's there, right, and for him, I guess maybe I think that's why it's easy for him, at least this is my theory right now, but um hmm. I'm, I'm investigating it a little bit at the moment and observing it it's it's very funny to to notice, yeah.
0: I love learning through our children. It takes mm. patience though, and we don't always have the time for that patience. I know. But it's a I good know. lesson to be reminded of.
1: It is. Yeah, it is.
0: And so your book is out now. It's available everywhere.
1: Um yeah, I mean this- I wrote it because I, I, like I actually like we spoke about in the beginning of the conversation. I feel like that uh, there's definitely sustainable action needed right now. There's no doubt about it. So I mean, I, obviously the book is majorly about like sustainable living. It's also part of the title, and, and like like also design products. Um, and I feel that it's absolutely necessary to talk about right now. Um, but I I wanted like a little bit of a different approach than the kind of like. Uh, Doomsday scenario that I feel like we are mm-hmm. often faced with, uh, and and like a st- even though it's called anti-trend, so it's it's kind of like a negative, like antiing some antiing something, sounds maybe a bit negative. I'm actually kind of like proing a lot of things in there uh, that I, I feel like are already happening but could be encouraged. So those anti-trends that I'm working with in the book are are already kind of like a little bit there. And what I mean about anti-trend is also it's, it's something really long it's something that dips into those really primal needs of human life that those things that we've been talking about today like like establishing a community that makes sense that that is, is nourishing to you because it grounds you in, in one way or the other and and like establishing nourishing routines in your life that can fulfill you mm-hmm. every single day so that you can be productive in the way you want to and uh, establishing um, good connections to the people you love and the the things you have around you so that you appreciate them and you don't replace them all the time and and, and mm-hmm. so forth. So establishing all those kind of anti-trendy nourishing rhythms in your life that are long-lived and uh, and not fleeting um and and i also i want to both address like of course like you're coming like us everybody that could like consumers you could say and in order to to also write about and, and make an understanding of how you can reduce your consumption without compromising on on being aesthetically fulfilled every single day mm. by the products you surround yourself with. What does that take? And of course, also addressing like designers and empowering designers actually to... To understand, like, uh, what does it take to create those kinds of products? Like, what does th- what does it need? Uh, what what does the product need in order to continuously uh, nourish uh, the the user aesthetically, uh, and and encourage her or him to establish those kinds of nourishing and fulfilling rhythms in in their lives? Um, yeah, so I'm addressing kind of both designers and and Consumers, the people that are interested in living sustainably, um, and what was the other part of the question? This was why. <laughs> right. So that was
0: the first sentence.
1: Yeah. Oh my god! Which was that was why long. did you write
0: the book? <laughs> <laughs> and the, second Sorry. Part, the second sentence. No, that was for oh. one sentence. I was I was watching. <laughs> the second part is um, what do you need us to take from it?
1: Hmm. Um yeah I mean actually I also want to address which is also maybe something I want really hope people will take from it that um, sustainability uh, is not only about like what you buy and how long you use it for and how you get rid of it again and recycling stuff and this of course that's a big that's a part of it and an important one too but there's also like a more philosophical level to sustainable living that I feel like we really need to speak about in order to also understand that it can be actually a really deeply fulfilling way of being in the world and this is also mm. why i'm actually writing quite a little quite a bit in the book about existentialist philosophy and these kind of like maybe a little bit more hairy topics but it's it's in order to to write about really what is good a good human life because a good human life is the most sustainable way of being in the world. what does it require to to really establish a good uh, life that you can sustain, justify, and continuously be in without being unsatisfied so i'm actually i I'm, I'm really dipping into that kind of a like um yeah a yeah, permaculture and way of being in the world by talking about sustainable living as a more philosophical, in a more philosophical way than just those, not just because it's important too, but those kind of more practical um approaches to, okay, what? how do we reduce and how do we recycle and these kinds of things that are important too, but really fundamentally, how do we establish a good, fulfilling life that we can justify and sustain for a very, very long time? What does it take? And of course, there's not one answer to this. I mean, absolutely not. I feel like you can live sustainably in many, many ways. And the way I'm living sustainably here would not be a way to live sustainably in Scandinavia or Australia, maybe necessarily. And that's another way, that's a thing that's really important to remember. There are many ways of living sustainably, Um, but when you dip into those really fundamental questions about how can you justify and sustain the way you live for a very long time and be satisfied by it, you'll get some answers about what it takes in the place you are. Listen to the land you're surrounded by. Look at the communities that you are in. What does it take to get fulfilled where you are? And I guess if you can't live that kind of a life that you can sustain and justify where you are, maybe you need to move from where you are maybe you need to shake up the life that you have um so there are also those kind of philosophical uh, approaches you could say in there
0: and it's all coming from the lived experience which i love because it's easier to um, take guidance and direction from someone who's actually walking the talk which you exceptionally are I know she said her book title Anti-Trend had a negative connotation, but I quite like the idea of bucking the system because who even said the system is the correct or even the only way that things can be done? Now, have you heard of the Regen Narration podcast? Well, Until recently, I hadn't either, and I'm buggered if I know how it escaped me, but it really is bloody magnificent. The host is Anthony James, and recently he visited our farm with his wife, Olivia, and his son, Yeshi, to interview me, and in turn, I interviewed him. He's a creatively and gently spoken gent, and AJ really is a natural storyteller. He's a gifted conversationalist, so I'm particularly delighted to be sharing our yarn with you, in a fortnight of course there's a hearty shout out that needs to go out to our gold star pod partners the hidden sea wine hope you don't mind having the small interlude in our um, pod conversations it's what gets us through and our supporting partners nutrisoil and wolf australia all of their links are in the show notes uh, each week thanks also as always to you our future setting community for sticking us in your ears with regularity living like tomorrow matters does take a village and over the last couple of years you guys have become our village see you in two weeks